Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, star of Off, 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 Off Broadway. Wow, that is a lot of offs. So we have we have recently kind of wrapped up our season on the films of 1996, but there are so many awesome movies in that year, and we got so many great suggestions from our listeners for movies that they wanted to hear us talk about that we decided to add on a couple of bonus episodes uh, at the moment for our Patreon patrons. And uh, the first one is going to cover a movie that several of our listeners mentioned that they wanted to hear about. And I think that all of us here at the old Awesome Movie Year headquarters are fans of, and that is Christopher Guest's mockumentary Waiting for Guffman. So that's what we're doing this time, Waiting for Guffman. Yeah, Josh, and um, man, I, uh, I'm so glad people kept uh, recommending it and fighting for it and saying we should cover it and as you know, this was this was a struggle for me to not pick as my personal pick. So I'm very happy that we're covering it. Um, I do think it's not only a very good movie, very funny movie, but a very, uh, very, very influential movie as we've seen this style of mockumentary based on improv kind of take off on its own form in the last 20 years. Yeah, this movie is is hugely influential and and I'm sure we'll talk about a bunch of that later on. But I mean, at the time it came out, it was it was pretty well regarded also. It was certainly a small film uh, made on a budget of 2.9 million and grossed 4 million at the box office. So that's not really a big hit. But I think as we've talked about with a lot of movies in this season, this is one that went on to just build and build and build its following on home video to the point where it became kind of ubiquitous. Yeah, this could have been our future cult classic, but you might be right. This might have gone beyond just a cult classic because it is pretty beloved. And as you rewatch it, imagine knowing nothing about this movie in 1996 and walking into the theater and seeing this story this uh, of this uh, group of ragtag community theater players putting on a sesquicentennial celebratory play of a small town in Missouri. And then imagine just knowing nothing about it. Maybe you don't know anything about Christopher Guest Pass or, uh, or any of these guys. Like, what a strange movie to walk into. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the people who initially went to see this movie were probably ones who did know about Christopher Guest and especially who knew about This is Spinal Tap, the previous mockumentary that he had been involved with as a star and as a writer but not, not director. A, no, because of course the director of This Is Spinal Tap is our favorite director here at Awesome Movie Year, Rob Reiner. That's right. The official <laughs> director of Awesome Movie Year, Rob Reiner. Um, but I think probably people who, and of course Spinal Tap, another movie that built and built and built this, this really devoted following over the years. A lot of the people I think who went to see this movie initially are, are people who were familiar with, with Spinal Tap. And then it, it branched out beyond that to the point where I would almost, maybe not, but I think it's close as to whether this movie is maybe more well-known and more popular than This Is Spinal Tap is at this point. I uh, I think you're right. Like, you could easily make that argument. I think so. I mean, dude, he's become such a, I mean, so influential. Um, I think you could say that about Best in Show maybe also. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. think we could and uh, and will later. Um, but this movie <laughs> to start off with. Uh, Stay tuned, everyone. Please do. <laughs> don't don't turn us off yet. Um, this movie premiered at the Boston Film Festival in 1996, and it also played the Toronto International Film Festival in 1996. Uh, was released commercially actually in early 1997, so kind of built up a bit of word of mouth at the film festivals to start with. Uh, it was well reviewed, quite well reviewed by critics. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, and uh, Roger Ebert in his review said. The movie doesn't bludgeon us with gags. It proceeds with a certain comic relentlessness from setup to payoff, and its deliberation is part of the fun, as when it takes its time explaining the exact nature of the travel agent's plastic surgery. That's the character played by Fred Willard. The comic tone of Waiting for Guffman has grown out of Second City and the classic SCTV TV show. Attention is paid not simply to funny characters and punchlines, but to small nudges at human nature. And I do think that's one of the important things about this movie is that it is funny, but it's not just mean-spirited and, and, and mocking its characters, that it does have an affection for them in their kind of pathetic nature. Yeah, I don't think it mocks any character, to be honest with you. And that was one of the strengths of it because, you know, Corky St. Clair, uh, you know, who has a wife that we never see, who's always shopping for her. It would have been so easy to just take the obvious gay joke route, especially in the mid nineties, you know, but um, they all take everything Corky says and does at face value. And um, all the jokes that come from him are built out of that character and uh, are pretty brilliant. The, that, that poor, that of all the um, characters in the guest universe might be my favorite one. Yeah. It's a tough line to walk and not, not everyone sees it as completely successful, but I think mostly it does work and that even if it, it is mocking these characters at certain times, but I think even in the mockery, it has a level of affection that never becomes mean. Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly said, Christopher Guest has always been inspired. On Saturday Night Live and most famously in This Is Spinal Tap, the delirious heavy metal satire driven by his performance as a wickedly self-deluded rock egotist. But in Waiting for Guffman, he transcends even his usual teasing highs. Waiting for Guffman is a madcap gem, a movie that salutes the garishness, the shameless enthusiasm of middle Americans whose lack of talent is matched only by their eagerness to parade it. Guest knows these people are ridiculous, but the beauty of the film is that they're never just ridiculous. When the musical finally goes up, it's a veritable triumph of tackiness. Ed Wood would have been proud. Um... Yeah, I think, again, it's a, it's a fine line to make it believably bad, but also entertainingly bad and, and also with love. And I think the movie mostly does that. Yeah, and Gleiberman, um, you know, he points out Middle America, which there are definitely aspects of it that, that uh, take, you know, they take their shots at. But I think any community theater group, any local band, you know, we in this season where we talked about the quadratics in... Uh, Welcome to the dollhouse. You can you can argue that this is these are the uh, locals of anywhere that have uh, dreams that maybe they didn't even know they had until the magic of Corky St. Clair. Right. And of course, I mean, in Spinal Tap, they're making fun of people who are the opposite of this. They're very successful 
big name rock stars and they're just as ridiculous and just as deluded in their own ways. So it's not just small town America. No, of course. And then, then we get a mighty win where he does it to the folk right. movement also. So. Right. And I think it's generally in all of his films, it's done with this level of affection. But but again, it's 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 not a surprise to me that some people might see it slightly differently. Ruth Stein in the San Francisco Chronicle said, Guffman is so matter-of-fact at the beginning, as the townspeople interviewed glow with pride about the festivities, that it takes a while before it dawns on you how hilarious this all is. They, of course, never get it. Later, she says, Christopher Guest doesn't let political correctness get in the way of outrageously caricaturing Jews and gays. The caricatures are so broad that it's hard to be offended by them. The portrayal of all small-town people as rubes is more troublesome because it's more subtle at least as subtle as this film ever gets. So, I mean, her, her review is generally very positive, but there is a level of kind of wondering whether this works. And I think it's more about that, is that people are kind of unsure of whether this is okay, and they ultimately conclude, well, yeah, it's probably okay, but I can see how some people might not quite see it that way. Well, yeah, I mean, we're living in the middle of cancel culture, and this, um, I'm not... I don't know if there would be anything in this movie that someone would want to cancel, but I do think that, you know, comedy, you have to take it to the edge, you know, and a lot of the time you don't know you've gone over the edge until you've gone over the edge. But what Guest does so brilliantly is walk that line, right? He takes it right to the edge. And um, I, I just think it's all funny, man. I mean, you know, I mean, we know flamboyantly gay people, and we know um, middle-aged Jews who are resembling of these characters. I know you said they're broad portrayals, but I feel like I could have known a Dr. Alan Pearl. And I definitely have known a Corky St. Clair in my day, you know? So Yeah, and I think they, I mean, they are broad. And that's not necessarily what I said. That's what this review says. But I think they're they are more nuanced than they could be, that it, it could be easy to tip it over into too broad. And, and I think part of that maybe is the, the process that they use to make these movies where there's all this improv and there's so much material that Christopher Guest then whittles down into what is actually the movie. And it's very possible that some of the material that they didn't use goes too far in that direction and that he knows how to pare it down into what works and what stays true to the character. So I do think the one aspect of Corky, the idea that he's flamboyant and gay isn't so much the problem, but the the idea of the winking references to him being in the closet and his wife that he talks about, that's the kind of thing that maybe we we wouldn't use today and is 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 a little dated, is I think maybe the most dated thing in this movie. Uh, the Alan Pearl character, the Jewish dentist, I think is less... Uh, problematic, if we want to use that word, but but overall, it didn't it didn't strike me as a problem with this movie. I I do think the balance is handled pretty well. Yeah, but Corky in the mid '90s, moving to Blaine, Missouri, he might have had to, you know, if we were going to dissect this as a uh, a real you know person in a real town. Like, I, I do you think a guy who uh, with the Broadway showmanship and you know everything. Uh, as a very out gay person would feel comfortable in a town like Blaine? I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. That's fair. And so maybe in, in real life, someone in that position would would remain closeted. Although I think the jokes about Corky are not that he's hiding f- 
from the townspeople and that he's doing it for the reason that you described that he, he wouldn't be accepted. The joke is that he's hiding it from himself, is that mm-hmm. he's closeted and that he is putting on this facade uh, and, and really trying to sell it because he's trying to convince himself of it. And so it's the joke's more on him than it is on the town. And I think that's where you could point out being where we're, you know, to go back to what we've talked about before, the punching down versus punching up. If the joke is on the gay person who is dealing with being closeted versus the joke on people who wouldn't be accepting, that's where it's a little dicey. But again, I I think ultimately it comes out being fine. And it's not, it's not mean-spirited, just like the rest of the movie isn't mean-spirited. And, and ultimately, the movie has a lot of love for Corky. Yeah, and I, I got it a little differently. I, at no point do I think that Corky is not aware that he is gay. I just think, you know, maybe he's, uh, as a performer, uh, masquerading in front of other people without letting them in on the, the true nature of his sexuality. Yeah, maybe it's not that he's not aware that he's gay, but he's trying to he's trying to keep it a secret and not and and again, he's sort of trying to keep it a secret from himself or he's trying to will himself to be this heterosexual idea that he comes up with. But I mean, that's maybe more than we need to read into Corky St. Clair, but yeah. I do think that's there. Yeah, I mean, look, if we're getting to act three when Johnny Savage, the the real macho mechanic drops out of the play and Corky has to take over all of his parts, which are all very masculine, traditionally masculine parts. Like that leads to so much humor and so many laughs that like, I mean, that character you would say is completely miscast in that show and it's hilarious. So, you know, I, I don't find anything problematic with this film and uh, I don't want to, and I don't think anyone would want to, cause it's so funny. And as you said, good natured, like, it's really, really funny. So yeah, it is funny and it is good natured. And I think the vast majority of people who watch it aren't finding problems with it, but some are. And I felt like that was reasonable to address even in 1996, at least one reviewer there mentioning that in a review, as I said, that's overall very positive and she's very much recommending the movie. Yeah. So it's interesting, Jason, too, that you mentioned like what would it be like walking into a theater in 1996, not knowing anything about this movie and just experiencing it for the first time? And that is, I think, the experience that I had. I remember going to this movie. I did see it in the theater in 1996. I went to the uh, Gold Coast Twin, if uh, if you guys recall that theater that used to exist here in Las Vegas that was our one place to see art house films at the time. And I... I'm sure I knew something. I mean, I must have known something about it in order to have made the effort to go see it. But I don't know if I had ever seen this as Spinal Tap at that point. And this was sort of my first exposure to this kind of thing. And and I loved it. I mean, I remember coming out of the, the theater thinking that it was great and thoroughly enjoying it and being eager to see more Christopher Guest movies afterwards. Although I hadn't seen it since then. This was the first time I'd watched it since seeing, seeing it in the theater in 1996. So did you see it in the theater, Jason? I did see it in the theater. And, you know, in a past episode, we talked about how um, usually on Friday afternoons in our high school, um, we didn't have class a lot of the time. So we were able to get out early. And I think it was like another one of these random groups of high schoolers uh, that we that you know, if I mentioned names to you, you'd be like, oh, I haven't heard that name in a while. Right. You know, Um, and I just I knew a little about it, but um Again, I, I really thought this was one of the funniest movies I had ever seen when I saw it. And I think I'm with you. 
and then I went back and watched this is Spinal Tap afterwards. But this was this was like revolutionary in the style of comedy to me. So, Dave, what about you? Your first time? Actually, funny enough, I saw it at the Gold Coast as well while we were here on vacation. I still oh, live wow. back in Pennsylvania, but we were here on vacation. And I saw it with my parents there. I had no idea what I was getting into, but. I remember distinctly, I don't think I've ever seen my parents laugh as hard as when Eugene Levy explains why he can't take his glasses off during the show. <laughs> that really uh, that really hit for my parents. Yeah. As, uh, <laughs> as, as very Jewish people, how did they yeah. feel about it? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they love it. They yeah. love it. Yeah. I had read uh, uh, one of the anecdotes of uh, Fred Willard. You know, there's that line where uh, Eugene Levy has Blaine Fabin in the place as my, you know, or he goes, what do your perceptive and keen eyes uh, tell you? And then you see Eugene Levy without the glasses and that kind of cross-eyed uh, mm-hmm. moment. And uh, Fred Willard uh, didn't know he was doing the scene without the glasses or how his eyes would look and, until he said that line. And when he saw how Eugene Levy was his facial expression as Willard delivered that line. He just had like broke up for 10 minutes and, you know, yeah. had to like call <laughs> it a take there because it was so funny. So, and I think that's what you're talking to. Uh, some of those more subtle setups that pay off, um, you know, as the camera catches it. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember at the time, I think I'm with you guys is that I, laughed like crazy at this movie. I thought it was hilarious. And and coming back to it, I think in part because Christopher Guest has done so many similar things since then, I, I'm sure I didn't laugh as hard this time, but I still did. I still found it quite funny and in, enjoyable to watch again after all this time. So uh, any other background on this film you want to mention, Jason? Yeah, Josh, you mentioned that they shoot just an insane amount. Um, You know, it's like 60 hours of film and it takes a year to a year and a half to edit. And I think that is why they are in some ways so successful because um, they go so deep on character and probably take after take uh, are trying to top themselves, but without trying to top themselves. It's not like, hey, let's let's do a punchline, but like, let's see where the scene can go, you know? So I know guest, his whole thing is like the deliberation of not knowing, you know, um, knowing that maybe he has to get from point A to point B, but not knowing how he's going to get there, which is a really fun way to do things. And uh, the only other two things I wanted to mention, the musical sequence in the original cut, which who knows how long that was, was uh, 40 minutes. And I think I'd watch 40 minutes of the, Red, White, and Blaine musical, personally. Um, and then the last thing is, uh, this is Meryl Streep's favorite movie. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, you know, the the improv is not just about the jokes, as you were saying. It's also about the character development. Much like Mike Lee, who we discussed earlier this season. <laughs> not about, not about the jokes, yeah. No, no, but about, about developing character via collaboration with the actors and via improvisation. So that's something they have in common. And that is, you know... Um, you know, one of the tenets of improv, you're not going for the joke, you're going to heighten and build the scene and, you know, take it to a believable place where the comedy's coming from. So, yeah, that's where, that's where we're at with uh, the first watch on Waiting for Guffman. And uh, let's talk about our current thoughts when we come back, Josh. Let's do that. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1996. We're talking about Christopher Guest's mockumentary, 
Waiting for Guffman, which, as mentioned, was obviously a favorite of a number of our listeners who suggested that we talk about it, and a favorite, I think, of all of ours, or at least had been a favorite from back in the day. And Jason, how did you feel coming back to this? First of all, had you watched it multiple times in the intervening years? I couldn't tell you the last time I watched it. I'm sure we all watched it. Well, you didn't, but we all, no. you know, in college I watched it and maybe you know, sometime thereafter. But I think this is one of those pieces that maybe I have such pristine memories of that I didn't want to rewatch. But um, uh, I I agree with you, Josh. I, I wanted to laugh more out loud and I didn't laugh out loud. Uh, I, I'll tell you when I did laugh out loud is uh, during the covered wagons number when Corky St. Clair looks at the audience with those ravaged eyes of his and just goes, everybody dance, you know, like, um, <laughs> But the whole thing was so entertaining all the way through. Um, It's just so much fun to watch. It is fun. Yeah. And as I was saying, I definitely didn't laugh as much this time, but I certainly enjoyed it. And it's it's just it's kind of a feel good movie in a way, I think. And that comes out of the way that the characters are treated, that it's funny and you can laugh at them, but you can also have this level of affection for them and you want to spend time with them because they're so lovable in their own ways. So I I, I enjoyed it. I felt like it had a lot of really funny moments. It's a reminder of how funny all of these performers are. I mean, they would all yeah. go on, of course, to work with Christopher Guest over and over again. But I mean... Fred Willard, who sadly passed away recently, uh, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, Parker Posey, who I think outside of these Christopher Guest movies is so underrated as like a comedic actor, but she's Mm -hmm. really funny in this movie. I mean, her number where she performs Teacher's Pet as the audition for Red, White, and Blaine is so uncomfortable, uh, but hilarious (laughs) to watch. She's great. Bob Balaban, who underplays everything in this movie, just his, his like... I love contempt him so much. that he has for Corky St. Clara, the like seething rage underneath that <laughs> character about how much he loathes Corky St. Clair, I think is, is really funny to watch. So, and even in the small parts, I forgot that David Cross was in this, who has not been in subsequent Christopher Guest movies, but he has a great little bit as the UFO investigator who talks about how the weather is always the same at the UFO site. It's always uh, 67 degrees with a 40% chance of rain, right. which is a, a great, really funny line. Don Lake as the uh, the kind of uh, clueless, uh, all the town elders, Larry Miller as the mayor. And I especially loved in this movie, Michael Hitchcock as the uh, city council person who is clearly in love the with super Corky. Fan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, great. more than He's, a super fan. I'm yeah. pretty sure he is in love with Corky in a romantic sexual way. Yeah, he is. And um, one of the uh, alternate endings has those two living in New York City together. Yeah. Uh, Corky and Steve. But yeah, no, all of those, you know, Larry Miller, I think, drives a, a number of good scenes there, too. But um, Bob Balaban, I, I know, Dave, you were saying you loved him. I think he is... So important in this movie to anchor it uh, to a place of realism. Like, you know, he's this high school musical teacher. And I like I said, you know, look, I'm in a play reading group every week and there are big characters like real life, big characters and and these type of things. So I think what you're getting there with, you know, Ron and Sheila and Dr. Alan Pearl, these big characters and Corky's the biggest of them all, you know. You need someone to anchor it to show you the the reality and the gravity of the situation. So 
I agree with everything you said. They're all so funny. Parker Posey is an underrated gem of a performer. Catherine O'Hara, you know, and Fred Willard have their places and Eugene Levy and Christopher Guest, too, on the mantles of comedy, you know, so... I agree. There's just, I mean, it, it's almost like how could a movie go wrong with this much talent? And uh, as we know, this one did not go wrong. No, no, it did not. And I think we think of all these people as titans of comedy, but I wonder at the time this movie came out, if that was a period when maybe people like Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard and Eugene Levy were lesser. I mean, they had done a ton of stuff and like SCTV that was mentioned in one of those reviews, but they weren't the the top comedy stars of 1996. No, this one kind of lit the fire again. You know, well, look, Catherine O'Hara, you know, Beetlejuice. She, she's always, she's always like, you can always get a, she's so consistent. You can get a great performance from her in anything. And, you know, she's a great supporting player in comedies. And now I think, She's having what a renaissance with Shit's Creek and Eugene Levy too, right? But um, I agree with you. This kind of like lit the fuse where a lot of these people and a lot of these people who we didn't know at the time. But a right, lot of, no, I didn't either. I'm sure walking into this movie, I wasn't familiar with almost any of these actors. Right, but I think this like relit like oh look at all these old you know kind of improv players whether it was uh, SCTV or Fernwood Tonight or whatever you know where it's like and then they're just. Uh, prevalent in the last 25 years of pop culture as great comedic players in so many different projects after this. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is that they were all working steadily, uh, but they were more known as these kind of supporting people. In fact, walking into this movie, probably the one thing I knew was Catherine O'Hara as like the mom in Home Alone or something like that. Although I would have seen Beetlejuice as well. Yeah, but- which she's great in also, by the way. Yeah, and she's great, but I think it was she was a supporting performer in these things. And same with Fred Willard and Eugene Levy. These these weren't people who were cast as the leads in comedy movies. And this gave them the chance to do that and gave them the chance to be those leads maybe in other projects, although maybe still primarily in Christopher Guest movies. But, you know, now we think of when you know when Fred Willard dies, he's known as this comedic great. And I think this movie was a big reason why he got back to that point yeah he he uh mm-hmm. he's so natural but he steals every scene that he's in you know and it's not like you know he's a big personality but i don't think he's a space eater at all it's just that that personality is what he brings and you know i think probably people would say as the commentator and best in show maybe that's the height of that but he just steals every every single scene that he's in in a very natural way Um, I wanted to also say, and then Dave, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. You know, Josh, we mentioned Spinal Tap. The songs are so good in this, in in the community theater way. And, um, you know, it was, it was Guest and Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer and then uh, William Ross, who I don't know much about, but that's who created this music that uh, is still running around in my head after a few days of uh, having seen it again. Yeah, the songs are great, and and they're exactly the right balance where they're great, but they're not too great. That you can just believe that they were created for this terrible local community production. So yeah, Dave, as a musician, uh, and as someone who's created believably uh, period-appropriate music, uh, I guess we could say. Whatever. Hey, that's the th- that's a great review from Josh Bell of of what I've done. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I I think it's it strikes that perfect balance though of of like good enough 
but you know, not too good. And so funny, so funny. I I, I love Christopher Guest songs. You know, he's so funny. Yeah, I mean, he's he's great at writing, and it's it's hard to write a funny song. You know, we talked about Weird yeah. Al in a in a previous mm-hmm. season, and to write a funny song that's funny but is also a good song. That I think is is a really difficult balance and. And the stuff in the, this movie is great. Of course, in A Mighty Wind, it takes it to a whole new level with the way that they're mm-hmm. able to do that. But uh, it, it definitely comes across here where it's catchy. And like Jason was saying, it'll it'll run around in your head after you heard it, but it'll also make you laugh in the moment that you're watching the movie. And yeah, like, so when we see uh, Dr. Alan Pearl as a Martian doing nothing ever happens on Mars, right? Like Blaine, (laughs) Missouri is where you want to go to get the excitement of the universe and the cutaways to the audience and their delight. It adds so much, you know, whether you're seeing his wife just be like, uh, just realize what a talent she thinks he is, you know, or... Uh, Larry Miller as the mayor and just he's, he's so happy. And as you mentioned, Steve, the councilman, uh, Blaine Fabin's, you know, uh, great, great or whatever, da- granddaughter. Uh, they're just all so happy with this musical. They think it's <laughs> such a smash. And uh, yeah, it's so much fun, man. It's just so much fun. There is a uh, I looked it up on YouTube. There were two songs that were cut. One was Nothing Ever Happens in Blaine, which is what that's calling back. Nothing ever happens in Mars. And it's kind of funny that they applaud because the the real the reason they applaud story-wise is it's a callback to a song that they know. But the way since that was cut, we just see him as applauding because they, they're delighted with right. nothing ever happens in Mars in this. We Martian. we do see rehearsals of nothing ever happens in Blaine, the whole bit where Bob Balaban is telling them not to pronounce the last letter. Yeah, you the, say Blaine. Yeah. Yeah. Say, yeah. yeah. Right. The other one's called the River Bulging, which is um a very, you know, kind of uh, epic uh, piece uh, of, you know, are we going to make it through this, you know, kind of uh, flood season? And what I love about that is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Corky's wearing his pants backwards again, <laughs> which he does in the, which he does when he's doing the choreography, which, by the way, if not uh, the funniest dance moves I've ever seen, I'd have to say. On, yeah, on those are great moves. And the, the, one of the only dated things about this movie, referencing, I assume it was like a Criss Cross reference. That I mean, even wearing. I think even at the time that was a dated reference because Criss Cross was 92, 93. But yeah. I could see Corky wearing his pants backwards today. Right, or Corky thinking that the like height of hip is to emulate Criss Cross. So I feel like that's a... <laughs> That's a successful joke, though. I do want to shout out, and I, you know, I should have looked up the actor's name, but not not someone who became a big part of the repertory players for Christopher Guest. But Alan Pearl's wife is very funny, and uh, I love her enthusiasm too, as you were mentioning, because I think the the sort of predictable or expected thing would be for her to be annoyed at her husband being away and always rehearsing for his 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 little play, but she just gets super into it. And is really supportive. And I did kind of wonder, we have the epilogue where Alan Pearl is now living in Miami and pursuing his dream of singing. And we don't see the wife with him. And I had to kind of wonder if she uh, went with him to Miami or not. I'm going to say she did because that's the type of movie this is, you know. Although things get a little dark in the epilogue. But uh, I do love that in that epilogue, what Alan Pearl is singing is what his great-grandfather sang on, uh, you know, 
back in the day. What what was that circuit called? Uh, oh, in Vaudeville. The Borspelt. Yeah. yeah, the, yes, oh, yeah. the Borspelt, yes. Yeah, the Vaudeville circuit, which is uh, my booby made a kishka, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. And that's a great callback again, because he mentions it in an early interview, uh, sort of towards the beginning of the film, and then he, he brings it back in later on. So that is... That is quite a classic. Yeah, vaude- and I can see, you can see that as a vaudeville and a borscht hit of, of sorts. My yes. booby made a kishka. And of course, all those old retirees in Miami would be familiar with it and, and appreciate his performance. Or or not care at all. Right, well, yeah, it, was, it was hard to tell exactly. <laughs> you got to go where the love is. And for him, the love was in Miami. So. Right. Although, I like again, as you were saying, the love is in Blaine. And that is one of the nice things, too, about this movie is that we as the audience of the movie can see that these people are ridiculous, but it's not a movie about failure. It's a movie about putting on this play and putting all the hard work in it. And yeah, okay, Guffman doesn't show up, but everyone in the town of Blaine loves the play. They go crazy for it. They have a great time and they are super into everything. And so I kind of like that, that that's the nice thing that, hey, they actually did a really nice thing for the town. Right, Guffman doesn't trash it because he doesn't see it, right? But- um... right. You know, what's funny. Um, and, you know, when Corky leaves because they won't give him any money, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go home and just bite my pillow because uh, you're all <laughs> bastard people. You know, the way they come back uh, like or try to get Corky back by impressing upon him that it's going to be a disaster without him, that the, that Blaine needs the magic of Corky St. Clair and that. You know, the the relative of, of Blaine Fabin, the town founder, just says, yeah, you know, the person who really needs you right now is Blaine Fabin. And she's on the verge of tears. I mean, what a what a way to bring someone back. How could you turn the, down the opportunity to to uh, go uh, go and, and make red, white and Blaine after that? Yeah, the townspeople. Everyone in this in this movie, they love Blaine so much. And that's why they love this play because it celebrates their hometown their stupid lame hometown that they just think is the best thing ever and it's it's just nice it makes you almost think that blaine missouri would be a nice place to live almost not quite but close (laughs) i feel like uh blaine missouri today would be you know like in my mind like these people might not but if blaine missouri was a real place i would just be reading about it and being like ugh. They're they're banning masks. You're not allowed yes. to go into a business if you're wearing a mask right now. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's nice that we can see the the pleasant side of of a place like that that we would maybe not see it if if someone made a movie like this today. So I wanted to also shout out to uh, Corky's apartment where he lives. Oh, and I don't great. know. I don't know where they shot. I mean, I know it was this was shot in Austin, Texas, but what that building is. But the fact that he lives in this like. Uh, this room that you have to take these ridiculously yeah. large long stairs and there don't appear to be any lower floors in the building it's just these outside <laughs> stairs that go way up to the top of the building where where the door to Corky's apartment is and again I don't know what that is in reality and maybe it's just the backside of some normal looking building but I just thought that was hilarious and why does Corky live there it's, uh, and it's never mentioned and I yeah. thought it was great it's the perfect place to take a bubble bath and listen to some Spanish music, you know, when you need to chill out. Yeah, it's like a warehouse space that that's just like uh, someone must have just said, you know, maybe that's the old stool factory because that was the stool capital of the world. And like, well, we have a top floor. You can just have it or something, you know. Right. Yeah. It's just such a and it's, you know, no one ever 
like refers to it or talks about it or anything. It's just a background detail. That and uh, and his Judy Tenuta T-shirt. Right. Yeah, the <laughs> goddess of love. That's Shout what I mean. Judy Tenuta. There's so much good stuff like that, you know, that you're watching, and it's just so hilarious, you know. Um, uh, they mention uh, one of the reviewer uh, Ebert mentioned the uh, discussion of um, Ron's uh, penile. Uh, reduction reduction yeah. surgery which they which they play off as serious you know as like a real conversation you know i have what most guys would dream of but you know i you know <laughs> and then uh alan pearl uh he calls back his uh his bit there when he when he's doing the old johnny carson thing and you know <laughs> ooh medicine man not the one to get close to dances with stumpy you know and it's that's how he handles the awkwardness it's so right. funny. Everyone's yeah. so funny. I love Parker Posey talking about her dreams of making a new blizzard at the end of, of it. Like low, low fat. Yeah. 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 And her, her standing at her barbecue, barbecuing this one tiny little chicken wing <laughs> is another great uh, small detail. Yeah. Um, and but what you're saying that that scene with Fred Willard in the Chinese restaurant where he talks about his surgery there's a lot of like anger and pain in the relationship between Ron and Sheila that comes out in a couple of scenes. And, and I think that goes to what you're talking about, about developing those characters via improv, that there's, there's like a serious undercurrent there that is, it's the fuel for humor and it's not uh, brought to the forefront necessarily, but it's clearly something that they worked on as actors and that they're using as background to play those characters. So uh I like that. Well, yeah, it's just like as they're backstage and in, in during the show and, you know, he says, you know, just finish my makeup and my hair and you can go on and work on yourself. That pretty much sums up the relationship right there. Right. Yeah. And as someone, I think maybe on Letterboxd point out what another great thing that's subtle about that scene is that he makes her fuss over his hair for so long to get it exactly perfect. And then you see him go out on stage and he's wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's good i like the scene where you know they're talking about their their process and not just in the plays but at scene study at home he always has such extensive notes for me well really they're for both of us yeah but most of them are, are for me you know yeah there's this it's, it's perhaps an abusive relationship emotionally between ron and sheila but uh yeah that's that's very good and there's i i watched this movie on dvd and there's a bunch of deleted scenes and that I started watching. And, and it's interesting, first of all, watching those scenes, you can see how much work went into paring this down because I watched like three of them out of 15 or something and then turned it off because it's just, it's a lot of kind of shapeless looking for jokes. But there is one scene between Ron and Sheila where they're at home and he's uh, forcing her to recreate his glory days as a high school baseball player that that really uh, also illustrates the, the kind of abusive emotional nature of that relationship. Well... Yeah, you're talking about some scene work. How about the auditions? You know, the the old man who uh, just says, I'm going to do a scene from Raging Bull, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, the guy who just swallows the ping pong ball. And then we get the, the auditions of the main players and seeing the reaction of Corky. He's he's good, you know, and then Bob Balaban, who never, you know, said, thinks anyone is good, apparently, by the way, you know, he's watching. <laughs> Really just funny stuff uh, all the yeah. way through. So. Yeah. I mean, we could just go through and name all the jokes, but I think we've yeah. really, we've kind of covered it. So do we want to give this a rating out of uh, 
five remains of the day lunchboxes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a good reference. Well, you're going to have to watch the movie to get it if you don't know it. Uh, it's it's four for me. It used to be five. Uh, I'd say four, uh, which holds up, which means it holds up really well. So four remains of the day lunchboxes for me. Yeah, I probably would have given it four at the time, and maybe I'm going to give it three and a half now, which is a good rating for me, and I do think it holds up, and it's funny, but it most, more reminded me of of kind of enjoying other ones a little more. So, Dave, did you watch this again, Dave, right? Did you watch this for it? Yeah. I, I did, yeah, I rewatched it. Um, I, yeah, I loved it. Four for me as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's, great. A, it's a funny movie, and if uh, obviously a lot of our listeners had seen it, but if you haven't, definitely worth watching, so... We'll come back in a second and talk about the legacy of Waiting for Guffman. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1996. We've been talking about a favorite, both of ours and of our listeners, Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman. And the main legacy of this movie, of course, is the whole career and body of work that opened up both for Christopher Guest as a writer-director and for nearly every actor who was in this movie, who went on to appear in later Christopher Guest movies uh, and one TV series that were all constructed in this same manner and mostly also presented as mockumentaries. Uh, Best in Show, which I think is probably the best one, which is the next movie he made after this about uh, professional uh, dog shows. And then uh, A Mighty Wind, the, his film about the folk music scene, uh, For Your Consideration, which is not a mockumentary and I think is probably the weakest of these. That's about uh, actors angling for an Oscar. And most recently, Mascots, which was a Netflix film about the uh, subculture of sports mascots. Uh, and in between there, he had a, I, I think, kind of underrated TV series called Family Tree starring Christopher O'Dowd as a guy researching his family history that was that was fun uh that was on hbo and is still available i'm sure was that was that a comedy straightforward comedy though family tree because uh i I didn't watch the whole series i should get back to it but it felt uh not as comedic as the other vehicles yeah maybe it was a little less jokey but it was definitely constructed in the same way and i think i mean a mighty win too it's been a while since i saw it but a Mighty Wind has a lot of like serious emotional content, especially in the relationship between the Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy characters in that movie. So I think as always, I mean, as we were pointing out with this movie, like Christopher Guest and his actors are interested in getting to the like emotional center of these characters as a way to fuel the humor. And so maybe in Family Tree, I mean, it's been a while. I watched it when it first aired, but I haven't seen it since then. So maybe that had a little more seriousness to it, but it definitely had a lot of jokes and a lot of ridiculous characters and this setup where Chris O'Dowd's character can kind of travel to meet different distant relatives in each episode, and they're all ridiculous in their own way. I, I, lo- I loved uh, Family Tree. I, I thought it was such a shame when they canceled it. It really needed another season. I uh, Yeah, there's. I don't think there's anything he's got in development right now. But, I mean, you know, anything Christopher Guest does, I'll watch. I want to go back and watch his first movie, The Big Picture, with Kevin Bacon. I never saw that film. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Or uh, the, the movie actually in between this and Best in Show, the next movie he directed was Almost Heroes, starring Chris Farley and Matt, Matthew Perry as the explorers who followed Lewis and Clark, which I think was Chris Farley's final movie. And I have never yeah. seen that. Yeah, I'd watch both of those. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, this form has just exploded. You know, we see so many movies um, emulate this form. And um, 
Curb Your Enthusiasm obviously is, I'm not saying a direct, uh, does it in the same way, but you know, there is this kind of like, here's the outline, here's where we need to get, now let's get there. And uh, in a much less successful fashion, Josh, I like to work in this form as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's two sort of formats. You're talking there about the the improv, the idea of letting the actors, uh, you know, find the humor in the scene as long as it gets from, from point A to point B. But there's also the mockumentary, which of course he didn't invent, but I no. feel like that, that format- it. Yeah, really took off after this. I mean, we talk about The Office and Parks and Recreation and those TV series. I mean, it's like a, a pretty standard format in a way for a TV series or for a comedy at this point. And, and Spinal Tap existed before this, and I'm sure other examples as well. But this was a movie that came out that really made that like a central format for people to use in comedy. Yeah, Modern Family, you know. Does a lot of that too. Um, there was a very good movie. I don't know. We'd have to rewatch it, but wasn't Drop Dead Gorgeous about like this too? I think so. I, I haven't. I haven't seen that, but that has a big cult following, definitely. Yeah. Um, so you know, but yeah, no. The 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 use of improv to get to a place, and we said it with Mike Lee in a more dramatic fashion, but no one does it better than Christopher Guest comedically. Larry David at the same level, I'd say. Um, that's really fun for me to watch. Yeah, of course, the Jason Harris film Wrestling with the Past or uh, no, not that one. What was the what was the one we <laughs> we made in high school was a mockumentary that was also about wrestling. Yeah, there was a pro wrestling. There was a pro wrestling team in high school and we used a lot of that stuff. But I mean, like I said, like I use I I go about it a little differently. We script a lot of stuff and then build off of that via improv. But I would say not that anyone cares, but the way I like to work is uh, highly um, influenced by this style. Um, of course, performers, as we were talking about, this really brought people like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard back into prominence as comedy players uh, that had been around for decades. And Fred Willard, recently having passed away, uh, had left behind such a massive, beloved body of work. Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara just finished up their run on Schitt's Creek, which eventually generated a, a very large following and lots of critical acclaim. And of course, Eugene Levy's son, Dan Levy, is the co-creator of that and star of that and carrying on the whole family legacy. A handful of performers who are not in this movie, but became, I was wondering, who is missing from this that you think of as Jennifer the main... Coolidge. Yeah, Jennifer Coolidge, Jane Lynch, and Ed Begley Jr. were the ones that, that really stood out mm. to me who were in a lot of the later Christopher Guest projects. Ed Begley Jr. had a big role, I think, on Family Tree. It was pretty... Uh, entertaining on that as well. Yeah. And Parker Posey doesn't get her due, I think, as a as a comedy actor. We love Parker Posey, the 90s it girl for indie movies and um yeah, I want to I wonder man, she's got it she should she should be working all the time still. She should I mean and I think she is working pretty steadily, but she doesn't get these kinds of she's not known for being like a funny performer. She's not known in the way that Catherine O'Hara is known or like Melissa McCarthy or somebody. And I feel like she could be just as good, uh, at least in the way that she demonstrates that in, in these Christopher Guest projects. I agree. I think, I mean, she's just so talented. She can do pretty much anything. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the legacy of this movie? Support your local community theaters when they come back. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm sure Christopher Guest would agree that this is, as much as it's making fun of it, it's showing that this is a, an important institution. Like in the town of Blaine, this is what brings people happiness is to get to go see the local community theater. Yeah, and we're based in Vegas, so we have a ton of talent in our local theaters. 
We do. We do. And hopefully all of those people will get to perform once again. Maybe they'll be able to put on Red, White, and Blaine as a stage <laughs> performance. I, you know what? That is one thing that I'm surprised has never happened. Like Spinal Tap, as a band, toured and made more, more albums after the movie came out. And I think even A Mighty Wind, they did some performances of those, those folk acts in a live setting. But as far as I know, Red, White, and Blaine has never been staged. Man, that's a brilliant idea. I'd love to see that. Yeah, there you go. Maybe a maybe a benefit someday when this uh, when it's it's possible to do some live theater again. So, uh, Dave, did you have any thoughts on this uh, music wise or anything else on the legacy of this film? My only other thought was just that I mean I'm sure somebody has said this before me, but like with the the rise of popularity of Zoom, it seems like the perfect place for these people to get together and do something funny right now. Yeah, there have been so many reunions of of casts of various movies. I think that would be that would be great. And even in talking about the mockumentary format, we had the Parks and Recreation reunion episode done that way uh, over over Zoom. So, hey, if they want to do it, Christopher Guest is uh, he clearly doesn't need to work. He's got his uh, right. uh, hereditary title there in England. He was a member of the House of Lords for a while, and uh, yeah, he just he can do whatever he wants. But I would love to see that. I think you that know- would be very funny. One thing to think about is because uh, we talk about like they treat the characters with love, you know, and yeah. everything. Are any of them better off after the show? <laughs> no, I mean, they all are, are, are sort of pursuing their dreams there in the epilogue, but in a very misguided way. I mean, you can't see any of them succeeding at what they're doing there. So I suppose you could argue that this the show has given them a false sense of their own abilities that they've gone on to pursue. Uh, Parker Posey's character, maybe because she decided not to, and she got stuck back at the Dairy Queen. I feel like no, she no, succeed. she didn't decide not to. She was gonna go to like. New well, she York. was going to, and she she, but she decided her dad to stay. Got out of prison, yeah, yeah. So she she decided she she picked family over her dreams and went back to work at the Dairy Queen. And I feel like she could rise to like assistant manager of the Dairy Queen. You know, maybe she's got that within her reach. Maybe in Corky's. Uh... Uh, Hollywood memorabilia store in the middle of Times Square. I wonder what the rent would be on that right now. That would yeah, be that's not that's not surviving the the pandemic shutdown. I don't think that would have been surviving before that with the way the rents were going. So probably. So yeah, so that's waiting for Guffman, and that is the special episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media, which I'm sure you're doing if you found this episode. I hope so. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Uh, about as good a website as Red, White, and Plain is as a play. Um, and then you got AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And again, if you found us here, you probably are familiar with our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including this great podcast. And uh, if you are listening to this on the Patreon, thank you so much for being a patron. And... We've got lots of other great content coming soon. And speaking of which, we have another bonus episode for our 1996 season. Jason, do you want to tell us what that is? Yes, Josh. As we had mentioned on the epilogue, we can't get through 1996 without Space Jam, which in the year of 2020 has surged in popularity recently. 
So check out that episode as well for my complete confusion at the popularity of Space Jam. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.